Sergeant Glover slowly patrolled the halls of Buckingham Palace. Even after months on the job, he still got lost in its winding, extravagant halls. After a few minutes of wandering, Glover found a more experienced guard who pointed him toward the picture gallery. He made his way inside just as a clock struck 2 a.m. At last, he'd made it to his post, Alone and surrounded by some of the most beautiful artwork in the world, he took a moment to relax. But the moment he sat down, he heard footsteps coming from the adjacent lobby. He snapped to attention and cautiously stepped through the doorway. The light of his lantern flickered into the adjoining room, casting eerie shadows across the floor. Another noise, coming from his left, Glover spun around and then stopped, not believing what he saw. There was something or someone on the floor up ahead. Glover swallowed and stepped forward, gripping the lantern so tightly his knuckles turned white. Then he took a long, deep breath and plunged into the darkness. I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a Spotify original from Parcast. In the legal definition, a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This week, in a special one-part episode, we're talking about troubled teenager Edward Jones and his disturbing obsession with Queen Victoria. We'll discuss how Edward began stalking the Queen in 1838 and how the Crown took extreme measures to get rid of him for good. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Like many in 19th century London, Edward Jones grew up in severe poverty. As a child, he shared a rickety one-room apartment with his parents and six younger siblings. The Joneses had a merciless landlord, Mr. James, and the entire family was expected to pitch in to make ends meet. By the age of 12, Edward was forced to drop out of school to start working. It was an oppressive, often miserable existence. In those conditions, it's no wonder that Edward turned out a little unusual. As a teenager, he rarely bathed or changed clothes, never spoke unless he had to, and got into trouble at every opportunity. Described as lazy and mischievous, Edward either quit or was fired from every odd job he managed to get. He simply couldn't see a reason to work himself to the bone for crumbs. Meanwhile, only a few miles away, the shadow of the Royal Buckingham Palace loomed, a mocking beacon of opulence and luxury. In 1838, when Edward was 14, he reportedly developed an obsessive fascination with the royal palace, along with Her Majesty, the 19-year-old Queen Victoria. He wasn't the only one. 
From the moment Victoria took the crown the previous year, bachelors across the nation fell in love. Because she was the first ruling queen in over 120 years, she sparked a renewed passion for the monarchy. To these lonely men, the young Victoria represented beauty and grace, as well as a ticket into the upper classes. Hundreds tried and failed to woo the queen from afar. While most of these efforts amounted to harmless love letters and unsolicited gifts, a few were more alarming. Twice in early 1838, men tried to break into Buckingham Palace to meet Victoria face to face. The first tried to propose marriage. The second claimed to know of a threat on the queen's life and insisted on warning her himself. They were both caught before they made it very far but their highly publicized escapades inspired copycats. The most disturbing intrusion occurred in July, when a man managed to scale the palace walls, infiltrate the main building, and wander its halls for hours in search of the royal bedroom. Luckily, the enormous size of the estate tired him out, and he was eventually found asleep in a chair just 20 feet from Her Majesty's chambers. Had he kept looking for a few more minutes, Queen Victoria could have been in serious danger. The break-in became a major scandal. Many were appalled that a man had managed to break into the royal residence so easily. But in fact, the safety measures at Buckingham Palace were shockingly poor. No one person was in charge of security, and a mix of outdated policy and disorganization led to an understaffed and incompetent guard. Edward Jones had no idea that the palace security was so lacking, but it didn't matter to him either way. Even if he had to fight off an army, he was determined to meet the queen. Over time, the 14-year-old apparently became entirely consumed by a fantasy of winning Victoria's heart and living the lavish life of a king. He was so obsessed with the idea that he refused to look for work help with chores, or do anything other than daydream. Frustrated at his lack of motivation, his father Henry kicked Edward out of the house after a heated argument. Now completely destitute, Edward became even more determined to carry out his plan. In his mind, the queen was the only one who could save him from a life of poverty. Before I continue with Edward's psychology, please note, I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. While historians are unsure what exactly motivated Edward's fixation on the queen, his actions certainly indicate that he was in love with her. In 2018, psychologist Romeo Vitelli proposed that Edward Jones's infatuation might have been the first known case of erotomania, Characterized as a delusional attraction to someone in a higher social status, erotomania is often associated with the stalking of celebrities. Individuals with the condition develop irrational beliefs that their feelings are reciprocated and often break the law trying to get closer to their targets. Edward was willing to go to any lengths to make his fantasy a reality. And thanks to the security oversights at Buckingham Palace, he was well-positioned to sneak in. Because he was younger than the previous intruders, he was much smaller and harder to notice in the dark. With this advantage, he hoped he could get onto the grounds undetected. He didn't bother to plan much beyond that. 
He had no idea what to expect or what he would actually do if he actually made it inside. All he knew was that he needed to meet the queen. Around 5 p.m. on December 11, 1838, Edward Jones crept up to the left wing of Buckingham Palace. He surveyed the gardens and quickly spotted a man approaching the gate near the side entrance, reserved for tradesmen or service workers. Because the man was wearing a fustian jacket, a common garment of the working class, Edward assumed he was part of the staff. He scurried up behind the man and casually walked in after him, trying to blend in as a laborer. It worked. Just like that, Edward was inside the palace. He couldn't believe it. Nervous and excited, he struggled to remain calm as he followed the jacketed man down the hall. When the laborer made his way to the adjoining wing of the estate, Edward broke away and found a secluded nook in one of the cavernous rooms. There, he remained hidden until all the rest of the staff were asleep. A few hours later, he emerged full of adrenaline and bravado. There was no one else in sight. Edward Jones had free reign over the entire estate. He looked around and felt his jaw drop. He had never seen such a massive ceiling. It was as far from his tiny cramped home as you could get, and he had scarcely gone beyond the hallway. He opened the next door he saw and peered inside. He saw moonlight glinting off of silver trays, brass goblets, and golden furniture legs. It was more than he could possibly have imagined. Endless corridors, a seemingly infinite number of rooms, and more valuables than anyone could hold. After months of daydreaming, he had finally made it. No more sleeping in the street, no more filth or hunger. He was a king. Now he just needed his queen. Edward spent the next two days living in the palace shadows. During the day, he hid in one of the many unused rooms, while at night he lived out his royal fantasies. He pillaged drawers, laid in the comfortable beds, and played with antiques. He grabbed valuables and clothing at random as souvenirs. On the third night, Edward found what he had been searching for, Queen Victoria's private chambers. Her majesty was away at the time, so he settled for rummaging through her belongings. He read her private letters, touched priceless jewels, and most disturbingly, stole a pair of her underwear. Had the queen been home, there's no telling how far Edward would have gone. But eventually, his luck ran out. At 5 a.m. on December 14th, he mistakenly opened the door to the guard post while looking for a new place to hide. He came face to face with the night porter, William Cox. The two stared at each other for a moment in disbelief. Then Edward smiled, closed the door, and started running. William went after him but was too slow to see where the boy had gone. Instead, he found the pile of odd souvenirs Edward had gathered, abandoned on the ground. Cox woke the rest of the staff and commenced a search of the entire palace. Eventually, one of the men spotted Edward hiding behind a pillar in the marble hall. 
Edward tried to escape through a window onto the lawn, but was caught by the police who dragged him back inside for an interrogation. When the authorities found the queen's undergarments stuffed in his pants, the authorities were appalled. They announced a public hearing and brought Edward before a judge to explain himself. At first, Edward tried lying. He told the judge he had been living in the palace for the last 11 months, surviving off of kitchen scraps. He claimed to have eavesdropped on royal conversations and learned the crown's darkest secrets. Dumbfounded, the judge sent Edward to jail while the police investigated his wild claims. For the journalists at the hearing, such a tale of royal incompetence was a very juicy story. Within days, news of the mysterious Boy Jones filled the papers. Just like that, Edward was famous, but his story had only just begun. Coming up, Edward's obsession grows and he pays the price. Listeners, have you heard the eerie new podcast, Superstitions? Every Wednesday, explore the varying beliefs people around the world fear and follow in this fantastic series from Parcast. Each week, step inside stories that illustrate the horror, weirdness, and truth behind humanity's strangest codes of conduct. Why do black cats represent witchcraft? What's the point of carrying a rabbit's foot around with you? And how come certain films seem cursed and others don't? Each new episode of Superstitions presents a story that unlocks the mysteries of unorthodox traditions and surreal phenomena. They may seem mystical or illogical or completely insane, but then again, do they? Follow the Spotify original from Parcast Superstitions, free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the story. In December of 1838, 14-year-old Edward Jones broke into Buckingham Palace, evidently in the hopes of wooing Queen Victoria. After being caught by the royal guard, newspapers rebranded him as the Boy Jones, making him London's newest celebrity. People were stunned that a peasant like Edward was able to wander Buckingham Palace undetected for so long. Public opinion was split, with half believing he was a rotten teen who deserved punishment, and the other half praising his act as a courageous protest against the government. It didn't take long for Edward's father, Henry Jones, to see his son in the paper. He had been racked with guilt since kicking Edward out of the house a week earlier, and all of a sudden, his worst fears were confirmed. Henry reported to the police station to claim his son and convinced Edward to cooperate with the authorities. At a hearing a few days later, Edward confessed to his crimes, including trespassing and theft of property. Henry was beside himself with fear. The family was unable to afford an attorney and he worried his eldest son was about to be sent away for a very long time. Luckily, Edward's notoriety helped him launch a fundraising campaign. Whether out of pity, sympathy, or simply curiosity, friends and neighbors donated enough for Henry to hire a lawyer, Mr. William Prendergast. The official trial began on December 27, 1838. 
The prosecution had plenty of evidence, but in order to prevent embarrassment, they omitted mentioning that Edward had stolen the Queen's underwear. As a result, the jury only saw the other relatively harmless items Edward took, including some pants, a box of old coins, and a book. Because of this, Mr. Prendergast was able to argue that Edward was merely a curious boy who had pulled a prank. He framed the ordeal as a joke, convincing the jury that Edward never intended to steal anything and merely got carried away. Reasoning that the break-in was simply a case of teenage mischief, the jury found Edward not guilty of any crime. Edward had not only gotten away with trespassing, but with severely embarrassing the crown. Henry Jones recognized how lucky his son had been and promised the court to keep a watchful eye over his son. In early 1839, he even convinced one of Edward's former employers to rehire him. With his son out of jail and working once again, Henry felt like disaster had been averted. But Edward refused to see reason. He had never been a reliable employee, and after experiencing the awesome luxury of the palace for a few days, he had no interest in spending his days toiling for pennies. He was also still dangerously fixated on Queen Victoria. He spent most of his nights wondering if his love had heard about his visit. Surely, he mused, her staff would have told her what happened. She might even know his name. While he was laying in bed thinking about her, she might even be thinking about him too. The thought made him blush. At his father's insistence, Edward continued to show up to his job, but his attitude steadily worsened. Before the year was out, he was fired again. To make matters worse, Edward found his minor celebrity infuriating. Everywhere he went, he was recognized as the notorious Boy Jones. People passing on the street yelled at him or harassed him for details of his break-in. To Edward, their questions were painful reminders of what he'd once had and then lost. For over a year, Edward drifted between odd jobs, lost in a depressive haze. In 1840, the 16-year-old was crushed to learn that the queen had recently been married. Soon, all anyone could talk about was the upcoming birth of a new royal princess. Edward was heartbroken, still constantly plagued by thoughts of the palace. Whenever he closed his eyes, he pictured the magnificent rooms and hoard of treasures. He knew he belonged there. Perhaps in his mind, Queen Victoria had only married someone else because they had never gotten a chance to actually meet. He deluded himself into believing that she could be expecting his return any day, and it would be rude to keep a queen waiting. So on December 2nd, 1840, almost two years to the day after his first break-in, Edward crept up to the royal palace once again. That night, Edward nimbly hopped over the wall surrounding Buckingham Gardens. Under the cover of darkness, he snuck past the security guards and found an open window near the servants' quarters. It was all too easy. Edward smirked and breathed a sigh of relief as he climbed inside. He was back where he belonged. 
He spent the rest of the night freely wandering the lower floors of the estate. As the sun rose, he hid underneath a servant's bed and remained there until it was safe to emerge. The following evening, Edward slipped into the kitchen. He filled his belly with delicious food, then tiptoed up the stairs. There, in front of him, was the royal throne. Unable to resist, Edward took a seat. For those few moments, he was the King of England. Bursting with arrogance, Edward next made his way to the Queen's private quarters. He tried to remember which door led to Her Majesty's bedroom, but wasn't sure exactly which one it was. After a moment of hesitation, he decided to just pick one and slowly turned the knob. His heart pounded in his ears. He had been waiting for this moment for so long. On the other side of that door, Queen Victoria was waiting for him. He read in the papers that the royal princess had been born two weeks earlier, so he was positive the queen wouldn't be away like last time. She was here. He could feel it. Maybe she could feel him too. He knew that once they met, she would see his potential. She would know that he belonged in the palace with her. If he could convince her to care for him, maybe he wouldn't have to hide in the shadows any longer. His head spun at the thought. His destiny was about to be fulfilled. At last, Edward took a breath and pushed the door open. At the other end of the hall, Queen Victoria's midwife, Mrs. Lily, heard the door creak open. She rose to investigate and called out into the empty corridor. There was no response, but she saw the door to the queen's dressing room slowly close from the inside. Mrs. Lily panicked, bolting the door from the outside and running for help. A small search party entered the room shortly after. It appeared empty and for a moment, Mrs. Lily feared she had imagined the whole thing. But then, one of the servants noticed something under the sofa. They pushed it aside and discovered a dirty teenager grinning back at them. Perhaps assuming he'd get off scot-free again, Edward didn't even try to escape. A police officer took him into custody and he was quickly identified as the same boy who intruded two years earlier. The Queen's Council of Advisors had a fit and frantically called a meeting to decide what to do next. The first time Edward broke in had been humiliating enough, but another breach of security was unheard of. If the story got out, they feared the media would turn the whole thing into a joke. It could even inspire more break-ins. To prevent Edward from facing a sympathetic jury, the advisors invoked their authority to try him in the palace's private court. Such a move was usually reserved for severe crimes like treason, not for petty trespassing. But they were determined to punish the boy Jones this time, fair or not. In front of the high court, 16-year-old Edward had no legal representation. No media was allowed to attend the trial and there was no one to bail him out. His father was allowed to attend just so he could be berated for not controlling his son. Henry insisted that Edward was not in his right mind and begged the council for mercy. Edward claimed that he only wanted to meet the queen and perhaps write a book about his adventures in the palace. 
because he was found with no weapons and hadn't stolen anything, the council could only find him guilty of trespassing. He was sentenced to three months of hard labor in the Tothill Street House of Corrections. Though he was tried in secret, the most recent exploits of the boy Jones leaked to the media soon after he was imprisoned. All around London, rumors swirled. The High Court did their best to brush everything under the rug, but the public clamored to know how Edward had been able to fool the highest level of government twice in two years. Some journalists speculated that he was a spy collecting royal secrets. Others believed he wanted to kidnap the princess and hold her for ransom. With all the speculation, it became impossible to separate fact from fiction. Thanks to the rumors, Edward was released from prison more infamous than ever on March 2, 1841. Hard labor mixed with jailhouse malnutrition had taken a heavy toll on him, and the moment he got home, he was hounded by strangers, journalists, and even a few authors. While some were supportive, others just came to gawk and ridicule him. Tired of the abuse, Edward shunned them all. For the next two weeks, he attempted to find honest work, but couldn't. No one wanted to hire a boy with such a seedy reputation. Edward secluded himself in his home and sunk into despair. He slept all day, but still had no energy. Considering the shame and stress he had gone through in the span of a few short years, it's not hard to believe he was suffering from depression. According to the National Institute of Mental Health, the most common signs of depression align with Edward's symptoms. Depression is known to result from major life changes and trauma and often develops during an individual's teenage years. Miserable and jobless, Edward was completely lost. And even after all that time, he still couldn't stop thinking about Queen Victoria. He remained convinced that they were destined for each other. So, on March 15, 1841, two weeks after getting out of jail, he returned to the only place he'd ever felt happy. Edward's third trip to Buckingham Palace was much shorter than his others. Since his last visit, security had been increased. Guards patrolled the grounds day and night, even so, he managed to sneak into an open window and avoid capture until around 1.30 the next morning. But at last, his luck ran out when a night watchman discovered him in the picture gallery. A few hours later, he was brought before the Privy Council again, who had reached their breaking point. They wanted him gone for good, but couldn't give him such a harsh sentence for simply trespassing. Frustrated, they dealt with Edward in complete secrecy. No media, no family, nobody. Just a few hours after he was discovered in the palace, he was dropped off at the House of Corrections for another three months of hard labor. The council made sure the prison was extra hard on him. Edward was worked to the bone and barely fed for weeks on end. By the time he was released in June of 1841, the 17-year-old was practically a walking skeleton. When he finally returned home, he found himself in a familiar situation. He had no prospects and couldn't even go outside without being harassed. 
He languished for months on the verge of despair. Just when he hit his lowest point, he caught a break from his landlord, Mr. James. It was a surprising turn of events, as Mr. James was widely known as an unforgiving miser. But soon after Edward finished his second prison term, the old man seemed to turn over a new leaf. In a show of unexpected kindness, he introduced Edward to a friend who offered him a job as an apprentice sailor. If Edward accepted, he would depart for a three-year paid voyage. Edward and his father happily agreed to meet the ship captain at a tavern a few days later for an interview. When they arrived, there was no captain at all. Instead, they found another friend of Mr. James waiting for them. He explained that the ship had already set sail, but wanted to escort Edward to another port to meet the captain. He promised that if Edward was deemed fit for the crew, he could return to London to say goodbye before he cast off. To seal the deal, the man presented Henry with five gold coins, promising to personally pay for Edward's expenses if the captain agreed to take him aboard. Edward didn't see the harm in going for an interview and accepted graciously. As he rode off towards the port, Henry wished him luck. He expected his son to get back later that night, but when the sun rose the next morning, Edward still hadn't come home. Up next, a wicked conspiracy is revealed. Now, back to the story. In July of 1841, 17-year-old Edward Jones left London, believing he would be interviewing for a job aboard a shipping vessel. He was supposed to return later that night to bid his father goodbye, but never came home. Edward's father, Henry Jones, was worried sick. He had waited all night for his son to get back. When morning came, he tried to contact his landlord, Mr. James, who had arranged the job interview. Unsurprisingly, Mr. James wasn't at home. Henry felt like a fool. He'd been conned. His son was missing and he had absolutely no idea where he'd gone. The only thing he did know was the name of the boat Edward was supposed to be hired on, the Diamond. He went to the docks to track it down and to his horror, learned that it wasn't a cargo ship as he'd thought. It was an emigrant vessel bound for South America. Henry was crushed. He went to the police station, but was met with indifference. The only one who would help him was a journalist at the London Times. After doing some digging, the reporter discovered that the royal authorities were to blame for Edward's abduction. In fact, evidence suggested that a police officer had personally masterminded Edward's deportation with the help of Mr. James. Against his will, Edward had been smuggled aboard a ship headed for Brazil with no idea when or if he'd return home. His life at sea was brutal. Because of his small size, he was posted high up on the ship's mast. It was a dangerous position for anyone, let alone an inexperienced young man. To make matters worse, the captain was a ruthless tyrant who beat him for the smallest mistake. For four grueling months, 
Edward was treated like an animal as the ship traveled to Brazil and back. Finally, on November 30th, 1841, it landed back in England. By that point, Edward was exhausted and demoralized. All he wanted was to return home and keep his head down. Unfortunately, the ship had docked in Liverpool, on the opposite side of the country from London. Once Edward disembarked, he was immediately abandoned by the crew. He had been paid next to nothing for his work on the boat and certainly couldn't afford the train back to London. Broke and alone, he spent a few days wandering the streets of Liverpool. Then, with no other options and a brutal winter on the horizon, Edward used his final pennies on a loaf of bread and began a 200-mile walk back to London. For two weeks, he struggled through the frigid English countryside. He traveled on foot all day, every day, sleeping in any barn or shed he could find. When his bread ran out, he survived on whatever unpicked crops he could scavenge from the farms he passed. Against all odds, on December 18, 1841, Edward made it to London. Malnourished and half-frozen, his family barely recognized him. But despite everything, he was alive. A month later, in January 1842, Edward started getting his life back on track. He got a job running errands at a cigar shop and, for the first time in his life, stuck with it. Unfortunately, things didn't go well for long. After just a few weeks, Edward started noticing suspicious characters hanging around the store. He didn't know what they wanted, but had a sinking feeling that he was being followed. On February 4th, 1842, his worst fears were confirmed. Edward smiled as he stalked the shelves. It was a relief to do his work without being screamed at. He looked up and waved as a customer entered the store. He watched as the stranger took a seat at a lone table without saying a word. Edward told him the owner would be right out to help. No response. Instead, the man stared straight at him and smiled crookedly. Edward nervously averted his eyes and continued stalking. He tried to focus on his work but could feel himself growing anxious. He took a slow breath. He'd grown distrustful of strangers lately and tried to convince himself he was just being paranoid. There was nothing to fear now. He was no threat to anyone. But still, he couldn't resist stealing another quick glance at the stranger. The man was still staring at him. It looked as if he was about to laugh. Something didn't feel right. Edward's hands trembled. He had to go. Now. He left the shop in a huff and returned home. A couple hours later, he went out again, but didn't make it far before a group of men surrounded him. His landlord, Mr. James, had set Edward up for the second time in exchange for a reward from the Crown. While we don't know exactly what happened next, the most likely theory is that Mr. James and a troop of hired goons kidnapped Edward right off the street. He was once again smuggled south of London, this time to the town of Portsmouth, where a warship, the HMS Warspite, was preparing to depart for America. 
A naval cadet recruited by Mr. James brought Edward to the docks, forced him into a uniform, and threw him on board just before it cast off. Edward spent the next five and a half years forcibly employed at sea. He finally returned to London in January 1848, and though he was now a 23-year-old man, he could never fully shake his boyhood infamy. Permanently labeled a criminal, it was impossible for him to readjust to normal adult life. He committed a string of petty crimes to get by until he was arrested in August of 1849 for burglary. Looking for an excuse to ship him off, the court sentenced him to serve time in an Australian penal colony. Edward's last known return to England was around 1856 at the age of 31. The following year, he and his brother moved to Australia, where he spent the rest of his days alone. Cast aside and forgotten by his country, it's hard to know how Edward felt about Queen Victoria in his adult life. He never married and, according to those who knew him, showed no interest in any other woman. He never returned to Buckingham Palace either, and besides a few stray mentions of it in his journal, never wrote about the Queen again. It's possible he simply gave up hope, broken down by everything he went through. Or, more likely, he just decided to keep his feelings to himself, content with the romantic fantasies he'd build up in his head. One explanation for his lifelong obsession proposed by author and medical professional Jan Bondison is that Edward Jones may have had schizoid personality disorder. People with SPD are described as eccentric and odd. They are detached from others and are generally indifferent to social relationships. Those with SPD often daydream or create elaborate fantasies. Additionally, they find very few activities pleasurable and may feel as though they're drifting through life without much purpose. Importantly, SPD is not the same as schizophrenia. Those with SPD are attached to reality and do not suffer from hallucinations. This might explain why Edward struggled to make friends, wasn't close to his family, and avoided talking to other people too much. But it's also possible that after so much abuse and harsh punishment for a childhood mistake, he was simply unable to trust others enough to open up. The truth is, even after all of his arrests and interrogations, Edward never revealed his true motives. This made the authorities view him as unpredictable and perhaps unfairly as a threat to the queen's life. In the end, it was one boy versus an entire kingdom and Edward didn't stand a chance. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We'll be back Wednesday with another episode. For more information on Edward Jones amongst the many sources we used, we found Queen Victoria Stalker by Jan Bondison extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion is a Spotify original from Parcast. 
It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Grayson Niles, with writing assistance by Terrell Wells, fact-checking by Anya Bayerly, and research by Chelsea Wood and Mickey Taylor. I'm Lainey Hobbs. Bad omens, good fortune, pure luck. Take a closer look at what you believe in and follow the Spotify original from Parcast Superstitions. New episodes air weekly every Wednesday. Listen free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.